0: from public radio to independent fiction podcasts is long and winding and full of bumps in the road, lengthy silences, and learning curves. James Kim and I discussed the reality of the many layers of work that went into Moonface and the roadblocks he faced, right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hello, and welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez Collins. There's a lot of jokes, and with good reason to be sure, about podcasting being too easy for a bunch of white men to sit around a microphone and call it art, about how it's the new punk garage band. Let's flip the coin. What's punk about podcasting is how it can be used so effectively as a platform and tool to uplift marginalized, underrepresented, and underserved voices and people. This extremely important facet often gets lost in the shuffle of executive media, Hollywood influence, the whiteness and toxicity of public radio, and the bias inherent in both sorting algorithms and people-directed curation. James Kim took out a loan to create Moonface after his podcast was deemed too risky. We spend a lot of time talking about risk, talking about making space in this industry for those we think are too risky, and what the word risk can even mean. Let me be clear. This is a calling in of people with power to hire and pay creators for their stories that would generally be called, quote, high-risk investments, end quote. It's time to stop viewing that as a negative, And it's time, past time, to start actively, aggressively making and offering that space, that money, that time. We get philosophical about it, but we also get technical about music design and the use of silence, about characters and places as characters, and about working with collaborators on an intensely personal story. Get ready to laugh, cry, and rage with me and James Kim.
1: James, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Drama Revival. We're really excited to talk to you about Moonface.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Ali. This is really fun.
1: You have been interviewed a whole lot about Moonface. And so I hope that you enjoy the questions that I've come up with. Oh, yeah. Having listened to and read so many of your interviews at this point.
2: (laughs) I feel like it's going to be just a, conver- a cool conversation, like you know, because I, I feel like I know you, so I feel like it's just going to be nice and chill.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's get let's get everyone caught up on your work first. So you you worked extensively in public radio with internships in audio and creating independent podcasts while you were working full time. So what was the path and inspiration that led you to entering fiction podcasting in particular with Moonface?
2: Yeah. Um, it was weird. I, I, I was making films before stepping into audio. Like I actually went to school and had a minor in film, but then, you know, I also had a much more of a sound background, like doing sound design and, and, and composition and scoring. And, you know, I, I ignored the whole film side of myself for a long time. And it was actually when NPR, they first did their I want to say it was like a story workshop, Story Labs, and a coworker of mine, Jed Kim, he actually wanted to do a fiction show. And he was like, let's do a fiction show and turn it into NPR and pitch it to them. And I was like, you know, if we're going to pitch a fiction show to NPR, like they're not going to take, I don't know what his story was. I think he wanted to do some sort of like Asian American detective story, which sounds dope and I hope he does it, but like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it never happened. And, um, and instead I was like, why don't, you know, if we grounded in reality and real experiences, and especially if it's like, um, if it's something that, you know, if it has a, a, this American life feel, but in fiction, I feel like people would at NPR would want to do this more. And that's honestly how everything started because I was listening to like, um, Welcome to Nightville at the time. I lived in the small town of Texas. And strangely enough, there's all these like stickers of Welcome to Nightville in the small town of Texas. And the show, I think, is like <laughs> set there too. And so I was like, this is really bizarre. Um, so I was listening to it and getting all freaked out and laughing at the same time. And so I always kind of knew about fiction and wanted to do it. But I think it was really someone else pushing me to do it. And, th- and then I just kind of went for it.
1: Well, we're all glad that you did.
2: Oh, thanks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so um, I think a lot of. Podcast fans um, and people who don't create podcasts but are love being in the audience, right? Are curious about the the nitty-gritty about working in audio in a company setting or a public radio setting versus working on your own. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the biggest similarities and or differences? You found in doing so, having run that whole gamut in your audio career so far.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the biggest things is money. <laughs> it's uh, it is a real big thing to do something independently, especially if you have like pretty big ambitions to do something, and and especially fiction. Like, um, there's so many creators I know who've like paved the way for fiction to be where it's at. And all of them started to do it independently. Like studios were not taking their ideas. And I commend them because it's really difficult. Um, That's on the downside end of just trying to Find the funds to pay your actors, the people in post production, your writers, like everybody. Make sure that you have, like, if you're doing longer recording days, hopefully you can have enough money to buy, like, crafty and, like, croissants and grapes for people to snack on. Um, but then the, on the positive side of it is really the freedom, like, in kind of like the public radio setting. It is so rigid and very risk averse. And, you know, at least my time in public radio, it was, uh, it, it's nice to have a support where you have a fancy studio and you have all these resources and people, I was at KPCC. So there's like more than a hundred people there that you can rely on and and they can help out. And there's that collaboration, but when you're on your own, you know, you don't have that kind of guard, but, but what you do have is that creative freedom. You're not in that system because, you know, with public radio, it's, they're very, if it's not something that the people at the top understand, they will definitely push back on your ideas and they won't trust you to to envision your ideas. And when you do it on your own, it's kind of like you're on your own terms. You can do whatever you want. And that to me is incredibly risky, but that's why I think it's so enticing to do things independently.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm really glad that you have uh, decided to use those words yeah. and start with money because... Shortly before this interview, which is happening in August, um, you paid off the personal loan that you took out in order to produce Moonface. <laughs> yeah. Um, which, first of all, congratulations.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.
1: And then you posted a thread about it on, on Twitter. I'm going to read a couple of tweets from it for our audience. Oh,
2: no. Ha ha. Too late. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, I finally paid off my personal loan for Moonface. Big thanks to everyone who worked on Slash believed in it. However, I wish higher-ups in podcasting didn't view this story of a queer Korean kid coming out as a risk. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had to take out the loan in the first place. I wish podcast execs would take more chances on people who don't fit the status quo to embrace their perspective and voice, but also to not view the stories they want to tell as risky simply because they never had those life experiences firsthand. I'm hoping that it's better for Black and Indigenous people of color and marginalized podcast creators in the future, and I also hope there's more BIPOCs in charge to support the stories that don't get told. But one thing that can change now is to stop viewing BIPOC stories as a risk. (laughs) Yep. So first of all, that tweet thread was great.
2: Oh, thank you. So. Thank you. You
1: you nailed it.
2: Oh, awesome. Um, I
1: want to dig into this a little bit more, Um, but before we do that, I want to give you the space here to speak into the universe um, what you want for creators of color from audio executives and what you hope to hear in the future
2: yeah yeah um, man that's a big question and um, seriously thank you for providing the space for for me to kind of talk about it and yeah I, I um, just for context you know I've been working, in this industry since 2011, uh, I have never, no, that's a, that's a lie. There's been one time that someone has taken a show idea and it was when I was in Texas in Marfa and the staff was about three people and the, the interns actually um, outstaffed the full-time staffers there It was a small station and they needed content and they were just stoked to have anyone wanna do original programming outside of that. Um, as much as I tried to prove myself and doing all these shows independently, and especially when I landed a, a podcast job at KPCC, I just assumed that I would have the opportunity to make something that was truly an idea that I, I wanted to make. Um, and that's not the case. And for me, you know, I, I left the, the entire industry in March. And, you know, one of the things was that, like, I always sent these bench goals of like, well, if I go to a place that's more podcast focused, if it's more story driven focused, if it has more people who are who are people of color, who are in the creator seat, then it will will be a better environment. And that just was never the case, um, which is why I just kind of left in the first place, because it, it just was very frustrating to be in these environments where a lot of people who are in charge just didn't really understand any of the stories that you wanted to tell. And um, You know, for me, I guess if I had to say something, it really is that I really hope that people, black and indigenous and people of color and women and queer people, do not feel really. Um, down on themselves when they get rejected because it's going to happen in this industry. You will get rejected for your ideas and people won't give you a chance. And I, that to me, terrifies me of that feeling of giving up because there's been so many times I've wanted to walk away. And I, and I almost did, I, I, I did quit the industry because I couldn't find a job. And so I For me, it's like there's so many voices out there and so many people who are incredibly talented that we don't know yet because they haven't been given the platform for it. And for me, I'm hoping that all those people who have been in that situation where they just feel like they're not heard, they're not seen, and that they're not given a chance and that they feel like this imposter syndrome simply because nobody wants to give them a chance. I really hope that those people and hopefully people are listening in that situation, do not give up on themselves and just continue on and and do it and do whatever you can to make it work because financially this industry is really tough um where there is a really big boom but people who are on the bottom end trying to break in it's like it's very difficult to break in when you don't have people, you know, and in a body of work. So it is like it's going to be a grind and it's going to be really difficult if you find a second job, if you have the luxury to do that and then work on your art on the side and just always hustle and hustle and hustle, like do not give up, because once you give up, that's one less person to tell their story and one less person to be in this industry to really help it grow to what it should be.
1: So let's talk a little bit about Moonface. Sure. So you've talked basically ad infinitum about the fact that there is a huge chunk of your own personal history and self in this podcast, because Moonface is a fictionalized account of of some of your story. But what I wanna know is, what form did the process of you fictionalizing your life take? And more importantly, what was it like emotionally for you?
2: (laughs) Yeah. uh, (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. yeah, it was tough. <laughs> I'm not gonna yeah, lie. Yeah, I
1: can I can imagine.
2: <laughs> yeah. I um I originally started the show it being um I I wanted the show to be an audio, like a someone who was driven, their career path was audio driven. Um, because I just wanted to play with the medium and really try and see how much more the how much how the story can really lend itself to podcasting. So initially it was uh the the character was, uh, uh, the Paul, the main guy was uh, a musician and was going to do music. And that, that's something where I studied music, but I, I'm not, I I didn't have a huge background in music. And, um, that was kind of the thing that he was going to pursue. He wanted to be a music producer. And, um, there's all these other choices where a lot of characters in the story that necessarily I didn't really know or could understand, but it kept on continually being edited. I would say that, um, a lot of these changes of it getting closer and closer to my life were due to Marynoff. off um she is one of the most amazing editors slash producers i've ever worked with and she um pretty much instilled this idea of like you got to write what you know and you know i started off this process of Moonface. I di- i wasn't a writer i didn't know how to write anything i i was actually writing terrified the crap out of me i i really like It's just a nightmare for me, and so I, I I started with just trying to do like okay, just write what you know, but don't make it too similar because then that's kind of (laughs) lame that you're making a story just based upon your life. But as the further I I went away from it, Mary kind of drove me to being where it's like, no, maybe we'll make the character just in in public radio, and it's like, no, 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 the character should be a podcaster, and like you know, and and it just ended up becoming this thing where it was very there's a lot of similarities when there weren't beforehand. But it, it but it became it started to become more true and it started to become more authentic. And all of this kind of dialogue and the other writing, like you know, it I wouldn't say it's perfect, but man, if you read those old drafts, they were even worse. Um they were just horrible. <laughs> horrible. Absolutely garbage. But you know, I feel like we got to a point where it was more true simply because of trying to veer away from my personal life and then coming back to it and kind of finding out what exactly the story actually should be.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Related to that, uh, I have a question from uh, one of our crew members, Eli McElveen, who is really curious as to, with Moonface being such a personal story, why did you bring in other writers?
2: Mm -hmm. Um, I love to collaborate. I really, really do. I don't believe that I could... Moonface would have been what it'd been if I did not have, um, ideas to bounce off of from other people. That's just me personally. Um, it's how I always worked. Any, any sort of podcast I've created, even any story that I've had, I just love talking to people. Cause for me, um, especially when it comes to the script side and the writing side of things, um, I, I like being challenged because it makes me, Think about, well, is this the best way to do it? Is this the best way to tell the story? Is this the best line of dialogue that is efficient and will get that point across? Is this the best emotion in this scene? And so it's a at least on the writing side, it's such a questioning process. And I want to be challenged because the more confident I feel in the script and in and, and that process, I only get to that feeling once I have people kind of beat me down. And, um, uh, maybe I'm a masochist, who knows? Um, but, uh, and the same, the same with the post-production and audio side too. It's like having people listen to these drafts and give notes on it. Um, I just love that art of collaboration. And I, I know for a fact, and it's definitely happened where I look at draft, even like draft 10 of the pilot to draft like 40. There's just been a huge change and I, I I couldn't have gotten there because without having other people criticize the work and, and, and push me in a direction. But again, that, that, that's mainly how I work best is just with, with other people.
1: So you, you put a ton of effort and thought into the music design for Moonface because it carries mm. so much emotional weight. Um, you made a music Bible, a mood board. <laughs> you have both original scoring and licensed pop and indie music. So yeah. talk to me about a scene in Moonface that stands out for its music design and choices in your memory for any reason.
2: Yeah, so the thing that, for me, one of the scenes that really stuck out with the score uh, was the letter scene at the very end of the show. So spoiler everybody for who hasn't listened to the show, but in the very end, the mom character writes a very heartfelt letter to her son, who's the main character, and it's really all about where she came from and what her story was. And you finally kind of see her side of the story of throughout her journey. And um, yeah, and, and with that, it, it, it was the music, you know, that was the one scene that Andrew Eap and the composer actually scored when we had all the sound design and dialogue assembled. We were on a really crazy timeline. And ideally that's how we wanted to score the entire show is have everything locked audio wise. And then have him come in and then add the score in there. And we just couldn't get to that point production wise because we all had full time jobs. But that scene in the very end of um, or in the middle of episode six, beginning, middle, um, Andrew listened to all of this, this story without any music there. And I just told Andrew, I'm like, Andrew, just go. And like, however, this scene makes you feel just compose to that and then um he came back and it was like he he scored it in like a day he he did it so quickly and he's oh just God. like yeah he just did incredible work and it was his first try too. and he gave it back and he's like what do you think i'm like dude you're about to make me cry this is an beautiful and to me that just sticks out because it it combined all of the things that we wanted to do in the entire production where it was the sound designer artina artunians me who was doing um kind of the pacing editing and and the mixing and mastering and then andrew the composer on that project that was the first time where we all worked together to make a scene very cohesive and it just to me it just always stands out like uh, just the emotional feel i think it's just so right there in that scene
1: it is a super gorgeous scene. Oh. And he made everybody cry. Yeah. So.
2: He does that a lot. He's really good. <laughs> He's really good. <laughs> but thank you. Yeah.
1: You can tell him rude from me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. I will. Oh, I will. <laughs> so since we, we mentioned it, um, on an episode of Livewire, which you recorded right here in Portland. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You talked about the use of silence in Moonface Mm. and the fact that a lot of it was actually inserted post-production. And it's used to great effect in the first episode when Paul takes a hit of poppers. Mm -hmm. So what's important about silence in audio work? What does it bring to the ear and to the mind?
2: Yeah. uh, You know, silence was a huge thing in this show. Space. Space and getting that pacing just right and the reason why is um i was really inspired by a lot of quiet films like sophia coppola for example like her body of work is like very minimal dialogue and 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 to even more extreme kelly reichart who did wendy and lucy which i think that's also set in the northwest as well and uh, i think first cow is her most recent film but you know, she started this, this whole movement in cinema where it was called American Minimalism, where it's pretty much just like, uh, you know, all diegetic sound, not really any score, really quiet and very pensive kind of moments. But the thing, the reason I like silence in audio is that in film, it works so well that you can have a scene without a lot of dialogue because you have facial expressions. And in audio, you do not, you can't use that as your... um in your tool belt. But for me, I always hate when someone says I can't do something. And at in this point, it's me, my internal self telling me I can't do something. Um, And uh, I was just kind of like, how can you get that reaction of like knowing what someone is feeling and how they're expressing themselves? Or, you know, what is their facial expression at that moment when a line is said? And for me, I was like, there's so much to when someone doesn't say anything and they say a line and you just sit there and you could even hear like, and I'm going to do it now, like a creaking of a chair. And like, it, it has like a feeling to it where someone is kind of fidgeting in there, like on a leather couch, like you kind of know what, what they're going through in their mind without ever having any dialogue to address that kind of feeling. And to me, that's that's kind of why I love silence so much. It's like all the things that are left unsaid, um, it really minimizes like, the, like, you know, I'm feeling sad. Like you don't have to write that because like if you do the sound design well, and if you do the pacing of it well, and you have the silent moments coming right at the right time of like a line of dialogue, it, it's more powerful than any line of dialogue that you can ever write. That and I also hate writing. So silence works perfectly for me.
1: <laughs> wow. Yeah. What a nice ending to this really Thanks. beautiful treatise you have on the use of silence.
2: <laughs> gotcha. No, no. But I do believe it. Yeah. All the other things. Yeah. Definitely believe.
1: All the other things. Just also this. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> what are what are some other podcasts that you've listened to that you think use silence in a in a very effective way that, like you've described?
2: Hmm. That's interesting. Um, you know, I think, you know, for me, like the big loop was pretty inspiring from Paul Bay. I think that that was like a very quiet show. I kind of pause saying it because I know that it's also you know it's it's someone kind of narrating their story, but Paul still uses silence in a in a like, in a really beautiful way. Um, I'm trying to think back. Absolutely. To, yeah, like there's a mermaid episode that was really beautiful. It Might have been like surfacing. Thank you, surfacing. Really beautiful, and I'm and <laughs> but a lot of that was it, it was a very sort of sparsely. Kind of, It was a sparse story and, and there was a lot of moments where like the, the the person telling the story was taking their time telling their story. And I always thought that mm-hmm. Big Loop as a whole really did that beautifully and, and really well. Um, And let me try to think of other things because I always give Paul a shout out and I feel like he doesn't deserve so many shout outs <laughs> at this point. <laughs> no, I love you, Paul.
1: <laughs> we do. We love you, Paul. It, your work yeah. is very good and you deserve everything. Yeah. Audience members, if you want to know more about Paul Bay and The Big Loop, we do have an interview with him on RDR with David Reinstrom, our previous host, host Emeritus, as we say on the show. He is a great interviewee, and David was really excited to talk to him about The Big Loop. So definitely go check that out.
2: Yeah. Paul's great. David's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, in terms of other shows, though, um, with Silence... (sighs) Man, I'm I'm trying to think of a moment, and I don't know if this is like a I listened to it kind of a long time ago, and I'm trying to think if I'm remembering it correctly. But for me, Habitat from Gimlet was really inspiring too, just purely in the in the sound design and music department of it, and they do a lot of work to evoke those emotions where they don't have to use any language. Um, but there was like one moment in that show where they had to listen to. Like a a poor producer had to listen to all these tapes of like the concept of the show is that there's a crew of i believe five to six people who are civilians who are going to hawaii because the surface of hawaii is very similar to mars and they're gonna live in a tent for one year to see if uh they can you know if life on mars could be Something that's sustainable. And the way they're going to test it out is by having this experiment in Hawaii with people who aren't NASA astronauts, but they're like trained as NASA astronauts. And um, it's like real world, it's a really cool concept of a show, and it's amazingly done. But I think that, like, there's one moment in it where, like, because it's six people who cannot leave this tent, that means that the person who is hosting and doing the interviews cannot enter the tent to do the interviews. So they're sending all this rough audio by recording all this stuff. And... Um, there's a moment where like some poor producer had to listen to all these like tapes from like, you know, f- the recordings of like 12 a.m. to 6 a.m. Is there any activity here? And I remember listening to that where it's like this producer found this really quiet, quiet tape um, of, of like two characters kind of talking and potentially sneaking off in the tent somewhere and having like a little love romance thing going on. But just okay. like the dialogue that was said in this really quiet tape, like it was you know i just kind of love two people talking almost in secret and, and and whispering to each other and there's like a i don't know there's just this kind of feeling that you get from there that's so genuine that like no words on a page can ever kind of express it's through how they're saying it and their tone and and how they're not saying certain things is really interesting um and then the last example i kind of brought to mind just in general as a whole i think caitlin pressed In general, does just silence and pacing really, really well with all of her work um, on the heart, asking for it, the shadows, just all of it, just just knows how to do that. It's really, really beautiful stuff.
1: Yeah, I was sitting here thinking, I wonder how many times people have compared The Shadows to Moonface. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. Ah, that's a good question. I'm sure it doesn't help that I name-checked Caitlin Preston the show, so yeah. <laughs> I almost opened the door for that one.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, for me, I just like, was thinking about, and I have been since like Moonface came out, basically, about you know fictionalization of people's real lives yeah. um, transformed into audio and that use of realistic... Right. Fiction. Yeah. Things that are set in a contemporary place and they're about real people living their lives and having relationships and going through all of this. Yeah. Are actually pretty thin on the ground in audio drama. Like they're not missing by any stretch of the means. Yeah. But in comparison to all the rest, it's it's pretty thin on the ground. Why do you think that is?
2: Hmm. You know, for me, I, I should say that, like, um, I could have gone the big route if i wanted to and just um in terms of the first show like why not like it's it's really attractive too
1: yeah valid
2: (laughs) yeah it is right like you know in in film and television uh you it really matters if you're writing a scene that's like set in space and you're having a massive space battle you're like "The, the, the accountant's gonna be like uh like so how are we gonna pay for this but in audio you can do that and have this space battle and then the next scene be in a, in a closet and someone's recording a podcast in their closet. And those two scenes will most likely cost the same amount. And so that lack of restriction in terms of your imagination, I feel like it makes people, uh, or at least for me, it made me kind of realize like, oh, it's very there's no limit to what you can do is like, if you're, if you imagine it and you, and you write it, you can really do that. But I, for me, I, I wanted to, to put the restrictions on and go like, it's, I could go that direction, but I need to put some barriers on, on what I'm trying to do here, because that way, if I hyper-focus on something really tiny and small and intimate, then I can really pack in so much more in telling that story. But you know, for me, I, I can envision someone who's making fiction audio to say that it's like, well, why not? Like you can and especially if you got the imagination for it, you it won't cost you more money to, to have like a massive shootout or like a huge car crash scene or transformers falling from the sky. Like, it, like any of those things, like you could totally do that and, and it won't up the budget. So I could see why it's really attractive to do the bigger stuff and the smaller stuff. It's like, why, you know, when you can do the big stuff?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Not to say that we don't love the big stuff. Yeah. We love the big stuff.
2: Love the big stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> Wolverine. Yeah. Wolverine was incredible. That was a, oh, such a good yeah. show. Really good. Um,
1: Did you listen to Marvels?
2: Yeah. I'm actually listening to Marvels now. Um, I delayed my, nice. my listen. Yeah. And that, again, is really big, but it has that indie sensibility just because the three people involved at the core are just all indie fiction people who... Did a killer job at making something blockbustery sound very cool and intimate.
1: It was really impressive. I'm just so, so impressed.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So creators out there, yeah, if you want to do like an intimate small story, you you can.
2: Yes, you absolutely can. <laughs> I encourage it. If
1: you can't give yourself permission, I am giving you permission. <laughs> yeah,
2: I know. Seriously, and I get why too that people don't want to do the small stuff because it's not. I'm not gonna lie. Like Moonface was really risky in that. Okay. I'm gonna. I'm using the term risky in 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 being like spending a lot of money on this and um, in this kind of show and uh, having no one listen to it. That being a risk, um, and because I all I want is people. Absolutely. To, yeah, is people listen to the show? But it's like really difficult if your goal is like I just want people to listen to it and enjoy it, but I also want to tell this story where nothing really happens. It's a little scary to do that. I'm not going to lie. Um I question myself if I should add more conflict or bigger set pieces in the show, but and, and I get why it, to me, I, I think that it's scarier to do something smaller than it is to do something bigger, and and maybe that's kind of why people are a little scared about doing something small. Absolutely. yeah,
1: It's a really lovely answer. yeah.
2: <laughs> Thanks.
1: So you've spoken about Downey as a character in Moonface, at least partially because, and I quote, growing up there, you very much hate it, Uh, which I super resonated with. Um, (laughs) I think that this presents an interesting combination with Paul's lack of place when it comes to South Korea. Mm. So can you tell me a little bit about Downey and South Korea as characters of place in Moonface?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, man, oh man. That's
1: good. I'm really excited about the excited tone in your voice.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. No, these questions are great. You're asking me all these things where I'm just like, holy crap, I have not had to ask, answer these kinds of questions. So keeping me on my toes, Ellie. Yes, nailed it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, with the Downey stuff, I, I, um, I have such a, a, there's this movie that came out last year, uh, The Last Black Man in San Francisco there's a really great line that uh, I could not say it better, but at the very end of the film, there's like these people complaining on the bus about San Francisco and the main character goes and, and stops them and says, if you don't love San Francisco, you can't hate it. And that's how I feel about Downey, where I love to hate my hometown, but oh boy, if anybody hates on Downey, I will totally come after them um, because it is—it <laughs> <laughs> is like a whole thing. Like it's—it's um, it's so natural to hate where you come from. But but it, it shapes so much of who you are and it's in your DNA. Uh, it's where, you know, uh, it's where I, I, I found like my best of friends. It's where I when I'm going through the streets of Downey, when I'm passing places, all of a sudden it's a rush of memories that I haven't even thought about, you know, or even when I'm just like walking down the street in a neighborhood I haven't been in for a long time. And then all of a sudden, poof. Oh, right right across the street that's where I hot box for the first time you know it's like all of these things that <laughs> are like coming in your mind and and it, it, it then you can't help to when you're there you reflect or uh, when you're in your hometown you reflect about like who you are and so much of it is because of the place and so i did definitely wanted to make Downey and and korea um almost like you said like characters um where where they the main characters in the show are like talking about the city as though it's like uh, a friend that they love to hate, <laughs> and like that was kind of the whole vibe of it. And 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 with Korea, it was also another place where it's it's a place that's it, that the main character is never mid to but it means so it but it it shapes so much of who they are uh simply because in their dna literally they are from korea and that that's where their mom like his mom is from there and um and so much of who she is is kind of embedded in who who the main character is and so it, the whole thing about place like i really wanted to ensure that like the the show you know starts off in, or at least in the first episode is like very Downey-esque and there's a lot of downy talk in the first episode. And then at the very end, there's a lot of talk about Korea and how, and, and how that shapes a person too. And so Place was a really big thing for me in terms of this whole show. And I just kind of subtly try to put it in there. So it makes me happy that you picked up on it because it's not something that I like outwardly talk about.
1: Yeah, no, it's definitely, it's there. Like it's in the emotional weight. And I think that... Um one of the things that helped me out is that I'm also the child of an immigrant. Yeah. So, you know, I think I feel like children of immigrants are really gonna be able to pick up on that. Yeah. With things like, you know, lack of access to language and culture and history and all of these things. So
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Colonization. Woohoo. Yeah, I know. Seriously.
1: <laughs> um, so speaking of colonization and <laughs> place and lack of culture, actually.
2: Good transition.
1: I know. Great transition. I nailed it. Yeah. Um, super good at those.
2: I love it. I love it.
1: <laughs> um, something that comes up in Moonface and in a few of your prior interviews is the Korean concept of Han, mm-hmm. which you learned more about from an essay titled uh, Kimchi Temper, yeah. Kimchi Rage.
2: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Tell us about Han and its place in your life and why it's important in Moonface.
2: Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, like throughout my life, I'm like, I feel like I've been a pretty angry person or just emotional person, I would say, um, throughout my life. And um, there's just been like moments in my life where all of a sudden, like just a huge emotional wave would come over me and I just didn't know why. And I, I just thought that was pretty much of just like a, a me problem um until all of a sudden i started talking to a lot more korean people and where i grew up it, like or Downey, like it's very like it, it, there's so many um, people from a lot of different backgrounds and there was a, a a pretty good amount of korean people there but i just was not a part of that group um simply because of various things of not feeling like korean enough and feeling super embarrassed i didn't speak the language so If I were to try to like have a conversation with a Korean person, they would probably look at me like a white person being like, you don't know, you know, I don't know this particular food or what this particular show. Anyways, um, so I I was pretty distant from just like any other Korean people up until like later in high school and definitely in college is when I started talking to more people. And, And then all of a sudden this kind of concept of like just emotional sort of events and outburst was not something that I felt embarrassed about talking about with them because they knew exactly what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And it was a really weird experience, really weird. Uh, Because for the first time ever, I was like, oh, that's strange. Like there's a collective kind of experience with this. I did not anticipate that because it seems like you know, when you go throughout your entire life and not feel like you have that kind of identity and you understand where you come from in your background, you kind of just go on thinking that you're like this, um, that you're completely individualistic when in fact there's a lot of things culturally that you just have embedded in you. And that was something that like, was really eye-opening for me. And when I went to KPCC and when I was making Moonface, there was a reporter there, Alyssa Jong Perry, who we would talk a lot about it because she was also kind of coming from the same sort of circumstance that I was where she didn't really feel Korean enough. But when we talked to each other, we we felt like we we never felt more Korean, which was really weird. <laughs> and that's kind of where the whole Han thing happened to again, where it was like, it was never clarified for me in those early conversations in college. But when I was talking to Alyssa, that's when she was putting a name to it. That's when she was like saying, no, point. like, look here, look here, look here. And then I just wanted it to be a a huge part of the show because there's just things in this show subtly where Paul may seem pretty immature and have like outbursts, but it's because of this context of... It's really difficult to, to be raised in a family where you're kind of leaving a war torn area. There's a lot of trauma that your parents bring in. And, and then when you tack on the whole language barrier of things, you can't really process your emotions in the best way. You get that emotion from your, you know, kind of embedded in your DNA from the trauma that your parents experience. And then you grow up and you can't even talk to your parents about that trauma because there's a language barrier. So now you're kind of fucked emotionally a little bit to trust kind of navigate life and not really have that language to figure things out and sort things out through conversation. And, um, and so that's kind of how I I really it played a huge part in terms of Moonface and incorporating that into Paul and just being like, this is what happens when you can't speak to your parents, like, you don't know how to handle your emotions and, and, you know, so kind of putting it there in the show and and addressing it, but never fully addressing it is because there's a lot of ideas I wanted to do in the show. So that was like one of them for sure. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thank you for answering that question so wonderfully. Um,
2: Oh yeah.
1: Moonface is definitely like a a a show that has a lot of layers, like an onion.
2: Yeah. But it smells better. (laughs) Thank you.
1: (laughs) It still makes me cry, however. So just
2: like an onion, really. Oh my god. That's beautiful. That's beautifully said. Appreciate (laughs) that's thank you though.
1: (laughs) I'm I'm a I'm a poet. Um (laughs) So I have only one more question left for you. Sure. Um, so let's uh, let's talk about our parents and podcasting.
2: Uh-huh. Uh-
1: <laughs>
2: Thank you, Ellie. <laughs> my
1: parents have this vague, vague <laughs> this like vague idea that I'm like a journalist and mm-hmm. I do interviews of some kind, probably relating to my too radical for my family views on everything.
3: <laughs>
1: um,
2: <No. laughs>
1: so what what do your parents think that you do?
2: <laughs> oh man. Um, you know, I don't know. I do. Uh, <laughs> this is so funny. Uh, okay. I'm moving in my seat. So there's a lot of creaking. Um, not cause I feel awkward by this question cause I love it. Um, but yeah, it's, um, I, I, uh, I think my parents think I'm a journalist and, um, but it's really confusing because when I was in public radio, they definitely didn't know what the hell that was. And I, I even remember playing them my first ever public radio piece. I worked on a show called off ramp and it was a weekend show. So I took them around a block and I was like, Oh, look, my P- my, my voice is on the radio. And they're like, so confused after they're like, okay, that was nice. And they had no idea what just <laughs> happened to them. And, um, and they didn't yeah. know what the job was. And then when I, um, got the job at Spotify and Gimlet, my parents don't know what Gimlet and Spotify are. They're like, what is that? And they're like, <laughs> okay, good job. Like, are you okay? And they, they're they totally clueless. So, and, you know, to this day, they have no idea what I do. Um, I could not explain it to them. And I kind of like that. <laughs> What's your situation? Yeah. I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, my, uh, my mother is, like, more well acquainted with it because my mother is from the U.S. Like, she's from mm. the mainland. And so she's just like, yeah, like... Podcasts—that's a thing that I don't listen to. But it's like audio, and I know that you interview people because you tell me all the time that you have to interview people and that you have to get off the phone. So,
2: <laughs> yeah, that's that's the excuse you give. Sorry, mom, I got to interview someone. Got to go. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs>
1: don't, don't give away my secrets. <laughs> uh, I'm my. I think my dad just thinks that I am like like my dad understands that I'm a critic. Yeah. And that I like write reviews of stuff. Yeah. But he doesn't quite understand what it is that I'm writing reviews about. (laughs) He's just like, yeah, stories, like books, right? Yes. Sure. Like books. Yeah. Just sure. Mm -hmm. Close enough.
2: Yeah. You know, that's interesting. (laughs) It's like your parents have um, a part of what you do. And if they were to combine forces in their ideas of what you do, it would be pretty damn close to what you do. But it's still not touching onto the podcast side of things like audio storytelling no
1: (laughs) yeah no they don't they don't get that really oh man i'm pretty sure that my mom thinks that the interviews that i do are all about like all of the like radical politics that we disagree on so that's Uh,
2: (laughs) oh my god and i'm
1: just kind of like mom i literally like i talk about fiction and like how to make people cry i don't know what to tell
2: you yeah (laughs) And then also bringing down the patriarchy, you know, and then throw that in there. And it was, yeah, also that, <laughs> just,
1: just you know, sprinkle it on top.
2: Yeah, exactly. No. Oh, my God. That's pretty amazing, though. I love that. That's what your mom thinks. It's just like all these political interviews that you're doing. Why are you doing those things? You're like, yeah. I'm interviewing people about like their space opera. What are you talking about? <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's yeah. that's pretty much it. That's, yeah. that's how that goes. It's very interesting. I just sort of let her like go over there and like believe whatever she wants, as long as she doesn't bother me about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a good move. Like, All right, whatever. Good
2: move. Yeah, I, <laughs> I share those beliefs. The less my parents know, the better. That's that's my thought. Which, yeah, they don't that's know fair, too much. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. And they still don't know about Moonface, <laughs> but, uh, you know, sometime it will happen.
1: <laughs> so, James, thank you for coming on the show.
2: Yeah, you're a really good interviewer, Ellie. It was a lot of fun talking with you. Oh. you. You definitely asked all these questions yeah, where you. I had to think and I haven't had to think for a while. So that was, uh, <laughs> that threw me for a loop in a good way.
0: <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this discussion and our showcase of Moonface. You can learn more about creator James Kim at www.jmstkm.com. If you want to discover more fiction, Stay tuned for next week, when we showcase the horror podcast I Am In Askew, just in time for October. We run Radio Drama Revival on a bit of a shoestring budget. If you'd like to help keep us afloat and featuring new, diverse, unique fiction podcasts and their creators, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. Other than Patreon, you can also support Radio Drama Revival by buying merch at our shop, at radiodramarevival.com slash shop. Put that sticker on your brand new audio equipment. Go on, it'll look snazzy. And now we bring you our moment of will.
3: Hello, friend. You know, I'm moving away from saying hello, listener, because I want to be more accessible and more inclusive. And I know that a lot of people only engage with Radio Drama Revival in as much as transcripts. So what's a word that you find more comfortable than listener? Maybe a little bit less parasocial than friend, given I have written much about parasocial relationships, and it's always in my mind. Anyway, uh, for this moment of will, I want to talk about, listen, this one's out there, okay, but it's, like, really good, so bear with me. I have been, uh, watching Pen15, uh, Yes, like the like the goofy joke for, uh, for for you know for its it, for because it, uh, because its penis, um, so Pen Fifteen <laughs> is a Hulu original show um, about two preteen girls who are in junior high in the early two thousands. So first off, this already resonates with me, but to cap it off, uh, the, the two leads are played by, like, adult women in their 30s, uh, and everyone else is played by, like, age-correct children, uh, which, if that sounds extremely uncomfortable and uh, strange, yes, you're right. That is the point, and I love it. Uh, it is, it's just this really intimate look at what being a preteen is like, and it's very honest and very strange in a way that I think vibes really well with Moonface. On top of that, one of the leads is Maya Erskine, who uh, is a Japanese-American woman, and a lot of her plot deals with being a Japanese-American preteen in a very white area with only a handful of Asian friends and how that tension builds and compounds on top of being a preteen. I just think it's a really fabulous, underrated, bizarre, hilarious show that's willing to take a lot of risks in a way that I think if you like Moonface, you're probably going to like Pen15. So again, that's Pen15. You can check it out on Hulu. And until next time, listener, um, I think you're doing a great job see i just said listener again please please tweet at me and give me tips okay bye that means it's time for the credits
0: this episode was recorded in the unceded territory of the kalapuya people the klatskani indian tribe the cowlitz indian tribe and the atfalati tribe colonizers named this place beaverton oregon if you are seeking ways in which to donate to native communities, the Aniwa Gathering of Elders and the Boa Foundation are raising community relief funds for six reservations. Oglala Lakota, Hopi, Lanape ramapo Apache, Dine-Navajo, and Toono-Odham communities. You can donate at www.gofundme.com f support indigenous communities in USA. The link will be in our episode description. Our theme music is Reunion of the Space Ducks by the band's Kylo Kass. You can find their music on Free Music Archive. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli Hamada-McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our social media manager is Ann Baird. Our submissions editor is Rushika Rao. Our executive producers are Fred Greenhouch and David Reinstrom. Our mascot is Ticker Tape, the GOAT. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez Collins, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome.